Storymakers. Welcome to Storymakers Show. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And I'm Angie Powers. And this week we get to sit down with Nina LaCour, who I had the privilege of going to uh, my MFA program at Mills College with. We were both students. We were both students together. And And we're not. (laughs) That was my lead to the end of that. So Nina is the author of three critically acclaimed young adult uh, novels published by Dutton Books, Hold Still, The Disenchantments, and Everything Leads to You. Uh, There's another book forthcoming in June of this year, 2016, and... uh, And actually, it's January of next year now. Okay, so lots have changed. Which you'll find out about in this podcast. So stay tuned for that. Also know that her novels have been Junior Library Guild selections, ALA Best Books for Young Adults, and have appeared in many state and regional lists. Nina won the 2009 Northern California Book Award for her children's literature and was featured in Publishers Weekly as Flying Starts Author and was a finalist for the William C. Morris Award. So this was super fun to sit down with Nina and chat with her. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her wife, who we discuss briefly, uh, photographer Kristen Strobel, and their daughter. So enjoy Nina LaCour. Thank you so, so much for coming on the Storymaker Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> well, let's just start with this. So I, so you got a two-book contract um, with Everything Leads to You. Is that, is, was that the first of two? It was, yeah. So you're on contract now. I am. I have finished a, well, I finished a draft. I finished the first revision and now I'm waiting on notes from my editor. But the next one is tentatively slated for the beginning of next year. So like Mm -hmm. exactly a year from now. That is so exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Any tip offs about the story? You know, I haven't talked much about it yet, which is interesting. Um, because I've been working on it for a long time and, but it actually just occurred to me last night that like, no one knows the title yet. No one knows what it's about. And it's because of that, because of the announcement where it's like two books, right. And it's all about that first book. And the second one is just an idea. And it just dawned on me that we're pretty far into the process and it hasn't really been announced in any way, but But it does have a title. Yeah. It does have a title. Good. Good. Yeah. Can you, do you want to announce it? (laughs) I think I should wait to announce the title, but I would love to tell you guys what it's about. Okay. Uh, And it is, so everything leads to you. I guess we'll talk more about it later on, but it was a real stretch for me in writing because I tend to naturally want to write about kind of more sad, introspective stories and not so much about like the giddy romance aspect of teenage dumb. So I kind of really went back to my comfort zone, which was what my first novel was, was was a grief novel. This novel is also a grief novel in a a different way. Um, It's a girl who has been raised by her grandfather. Her grandfather has died. And so she's really without family and is starting her first year of college and kind of figuring out, you know, what it means to be like alone in a really kind of true sense. And so it's very, very different from everything leads to you. It's a very quiet book. So, and so when you sold everything leads to you, um, was that also on proposal? I mean, were you proposing these two books? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been really 
Well, no, um, the one, oh, I guess I am just going to say what it is because it's going to be too confusing. It's called Ocean Beach. It takes place half in San Francisco. Like in uh, the- wonderful. You heard it here on Storymaker Show. <laughs> <laughs> um, it would be too confusing to just call it untitled. But I, yeah, I hadn't even conceptualized that book at all yet. It was all, I, you know, I, I've worked with my editor at Dutton for a long time now. She bought my first book in 2007. It wasn't published until 2009. But we've been working together for almost 10 years. So after Hold Still, she said she wanted another one. So I kind of came up with an idea for The Disenchantments, which is my second. After that one was published, she said, let's do another. And then I wrote, I think the first chapter, just really a few pages of Everything Leads to You. And based on that, she was like, great. And then she threw in another one, which was a great surprise. And, (laughs) you know. That's wonderful. So, so how this, how was it to um, one, write your fourth book? I mean, how has your process changed over the books and two to write, um, I don't, uh, well, I guess you wrote, wrote the last two, at least on, under contract or maybe the last three. Yeah. Um, I, I have written the last three under contract and it was, it's been interesting. Like the first one I wrote in grad school um, with Angie um, in young adult writing classes. So you didn't read any of that one in the classes, I don't think. But um, <clears throat> so I, I wrote that one, you know, purely outside of the publishing world. I had no idea what to expect. And it was a pretty great experience just in terms of just like the artistic part of it and just not worrying about where it would go. Like the pursuit of like artistic pursuits in grad school are so different from like commercial professional artistic pursuits. And so it um, was a, a really kind of joyful experience to do it. And then my second and third, I really struggled with. They were both really difficult for me. And, you know, I was writing in a vacuum, which I hadn't before. I didn't have that school um like I didn't have the camaraderie. I didn't have that encouragement on a daily or weekly basis. And it was just really hard because I was thinking about my first book being out in the world and how that one was really different from my next one. And would people like what I was doing now? You know, I had like the inner critic kind of multiplied, like it wasn't only me now, it was like everyone who had ever read or heard about my first book. And so it was very difficult. And then with this fourth one, I kind of thought like, okay, this is what writing feels like now. It just like feels like work. It's all a grind. It's all really hard. And then suddenly I had this experience where it came naturally again. It felt really good again. Like I felt confident in what I was doing. And I kind of now have told myself if like one every third book feels like that, that'll be great. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Do do, Do you know what shifted? You know, I, I don't really, I, I mean, maybe I was writing like the story that I really felt compelled to tell in a way that I hadn't been with my second and third book. Like the second book was definitely something I wanted to do, but I think I worried about it just because I was afraid that I was writing about like something so too frivolous. Like I went from, you know, grief and self-harm and like all of these really difficult loss, like all of these really difficult topics to like a group of kids on a road trip and like unrequited love. And that started feeling 
like maybe it wasn't serious enough or something. I don't think that's the case at all. Like I do think there's so much to be said for that sort of story, but it's also a more difficult story because it's, you have to make, you have to make something really emotionally resonant without those huge kind of catastrophes. And so it was a big challenge. And then the third one though, everything leads to you. That was a real stretch for me. And that was the only book that I went into thinking I want to write the story like for an agenda kind of mm-hmm. and not like a super strong political agenda, but it's like, I, it was really important to me to write a book about like teenage girls who fall in love with each other, who, where it's not sad and where their sexuality isn't made into like a central issue of the book. And where it like, mm-hmm. just, I could have this like happy love story for queer teenagers. That was my real goal. Which I love. Yes. I, I appreciated I, that. I was like, <laughs> I started reading it and then I, and I turned to Angie and I was like, it's the girls they're falling in love like ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm glad I'm glad <laughs> apparently the teenager in old queers yeah. still like also resonate with that so <laughs> great oh uh what I mean by old Slightly is seasoned older. Yeah. seasoned oh, great <laughs> You're really good at it by now is what I'm saying. That's all. Yes. <laughs> so, but, so maybe there's something uh, that's like a, a sense of coming home to the, to the grief. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, it also, it's the first book that I've written post motherhood, uh-huh. which is interesting. And there have been a lot of changes, um, not within my immediate, not within my like wife and daughter, but within my greater, my family of origin, a lot of changes. And it's been a, a time of, of some loss. And I think it was just like, I was feeling a lot and the writing really became like this powerful way of channeling some of that. The other thing, when you have a baby, I mean, I just remember like everything, like, like when I had to go meet with a client, it just felt like this huge vacation. You know what I mean? It was like, it was like, I have to work. No, I have to work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is incredible. I mean, one of the hugest changes for me has just been adaptability Mm -hmm. and kind of a loss of preciousness surrounding my process and where I need to be and how I need to be set up. And now it's like, I'll take whatever time anywhere, you know, like I used to care so much about my environment and right. I've been like really weird places now where it's just like, it does not matter. Like I'd be right in the 7-Eleven and it would be fine, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, totally. I remember um, nursing and rocking and like just telling myself my story in my head because that's all I could do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So. I don't remember that because I was asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I was actually looking at your blog this morning, kind mm-hmm. of all the way back and a lot of really interesting um, adventures and challenges, especially with withhold still going to, I mean, going to class to whole schools where people had been, you know, dealing with, with suicide of classmates and then also being banned mm-hmm. or, or taken out of schools. Yeah. Um, it has been very interesting. It has taken me in some unexpected directions for sure. The, I mean, it's going to that school, um, in Minnesota was the reason I ended up writing everything leads to you. Like I, um, 
I think I mentioned that probably in what you read. I can't remember exactly what's on there because I have neglected my blog for years at this point. But um, it's still there for you. That's great. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, it it's, you know, I think one thing that it has taught me in a kind of personal way, even though I've known this to some degree from my experience teaching high school, but I... It's, it's taught me that books are just a wonderful place to start conversations. And I think that's why that book kind of has brought me to different places because when there are these tragedies, like there needs to be something to base the conversation on, right? There needs to be a leaping off point. And I think that books like Hold Still and other books that handle those topics in a responsible and not sensationalistic way are just like a really good foundation for that. You weren't a high school teacher when you started writing YA, is that right? No, I wasn't. Um, but I was, let's see, I actually, I had this incredible week. So like I finished grad school, I finished writing my novel over the summer. I had a year of being kind of strung along by this agent who ended up never reading the second half of my book and just like never responding. But I was like saving everything for her. I thought she was the one. And um, then, and I had like job rejection after job rejection, um, mostly like, like just submitting resumes, like, and never hearing anything back. And then one week, in one week, I got an interview at a high school and offer... Oh, wait, no. I had, I had gotten an offer of representation from an agent like a week or two before. Then in one week, I got the um, offer for publication for Hold Still and a job offer to teach full-time high school. It was like <laughs> after a year of searching, suddenly these things happened within days. That's so awesome. I mean, it's like you got to kind of hold out for those, those moments. Um, how did you know that YA was what you wanted to do? I didn't. I mean, I started the Mills program writing for adults and I was really struggling. It was just like, I was young. Like I started college at 17 and I went straight into Mills. I was 21 in the beginning. My first workshop, you were in Angie. And I remember, I feel like I remember everybody's face in that workshop because I was one of two first year students. So it was all second years. Like everyone knew each other. Everyone knew the process. Were we, I mean? were we mean? You, I don't think you were mean, but it was still a traumatizing experience for me. <laughs> um, and I submitted this book and I had come from this position of just kind of always been, um, like everyone had always been very supportive of my writing. And in undergrad workshops, everyone had always like, treated my work as something that they enjoyed and then I start this workshop and I felt at least like I was being ripped to shreds and I remember like it was first grad school workshop I was in the first hour I remember like holding it together like thanking everyone going into a bathroom stall and crying and and that's not really like me like I tend to (laughs) I I have a really bad memory in general so what I use is like my sense and like I don't remember feeling anything other than positive towards your work. You know, and it's that's an interesting comment because later I did find like everybody's marked up manuscripts and there was definitely more positive than negative in there, you know. And of course it's the point of a workshop to get deeper into the story and say what's not working and it's something that I appreciate now but it took me a while. I think I just felt 
just like out of my element, intimidated. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and I felt like there was a degree of honesty that I wasn't used to or, or candor that I wasn't used to. Not everything was like cloaked in this like gentle way of telling someone, you know, how you feel. So anyway, I, I set aside that novel that I had been working on. I took a, a young adult class and I realized like, oh, this is great. This is totally my comfort zone. And I think it absolutely was. I mean, I think that was a perfect age to start thinking about teenage experiences, like just a few years later. So I had a little more wisdom, but I could still really tap into those emotions. And um, and now I'm still working on that adult novel. <laughs> That's my current project. And um it's completely changed. I mean, every single thing about it has changed except for like three characters are still there. But, wow. and and now I think like, I'm so glad I didn't write this when I was 21. Like, mm. you know, there's just so much in it that I had no, I didn't have enough life experience to write this particular book. Interesting, interesting. You know, one of the things, um, I loved about everything. Well, I love the the romance, right? Of, of everything leads to you, and then um, and then you know I, when you love a book and you read it, then you like read every, you finish the last word, and then you like go and read everything else like on the book, right? Like the copy, <laughs> whatever. And so then I discovered that um, that you have been with your wife since you were like nineteen, right? Yeah. yeah. Which was a really fun cap on, like, sort of like topping uh, you know, whipped cream on the book because it kind of took the fantasy of, you know, true love as a teenager and and actually made it seem like, well, maybe they could stay together. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> you know, that's something. I mean, it's been personal experience, but also from teaching high school. And I, I mean, I, I used to teach at this tiny school. There were about a hundred students, and so everyone knew each other really well. Um, And there are a couple relationships from like my first freshman English class where they're still together. And now it's a long time later, you know, like now they're in their mid twenties. Like, (laughs) and um, I feel like one of the things that's important to me being a young adult author is to not ever write off those experiences as being, you know, not, as true or as real as adult experiences, even if it's not going to last forever. Um, But it might. It might. Yeah. It's it's the adult cynic that is like, well, that's not going to happen. And then you're like, oh, maybe it does. You know, I thought I I know some people who have been together. I think they're in their 40s now since their freshman year in high school. Mm -hmm. And, And I have to say that by the time they hit senior year, people were like, what why are you guys like still together like they just kind of didn't get it and then they got married and they had kids and they're you know it's like okay yeah. it happens for some people maybe sometimes at 13 you just know sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so then uh, you made a film yeah. out of your first novel and i would love to start with talking about what it was like to because you to write the screenplay because you wrote the screenplay right and and, and how much and how you how much you studied structure and how you went from, you know, the novel to the screenplay? Yeah. Um, well, I took a class, an online class through the Gotham. Um, I forgot what the whole title is, but Gotham, Gotham Writers Workshop. Yeah, I did that um, because I had absolutely no idea what the structure was. I knew it was a very specific structure, but I had no idea how to do it. So I did that and I felt like 
I felt like the rules wouldn't apply to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> just because I thought I don't typically like rules in fiction, you know, and, and over many years of school or reading books, like some people do like to give kind of firm rules. And I always feel like, oh no, like discard that one. <laughs> I thought it would be the same for screenwriting. And then I discovered that, you know, so, so then like, it looked great to me on the page. The biggest rule that I broke was like way too long of scenes and especially much bigger blocks of dialogue than are good for a movie. And the only way I learned that was by being in the room while those poor actors were like delivering these monologues. <laughs> and um, like the funniest story from the filming was there we had this young volunteer, this high school student who was standing up on a table and holding one of the big like light reflectors. And um, his knees buckled and he fainted in the middle of one of <laughs> And I was like, okay, this is way too long. Like, <laughs> Signs that you're seeing may be too, too long. long. Yes. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a great learning experience. And I also learned how to improvise then and, you know, like cut big blocks you know, right there on set. And, um, and I learned how amazing editors are for being able to shave scenes down. And, and I do hope to write another screenplay and I, I will definitely keep things much shorter. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. The main thing I learned about screenwriting is it needs to be short. Yes. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I remember I took screenwriting courses right after Mills because I feel like I left without a sense of how to either revise very well. Like I didn't know how you decide what's important if you just have a big mess. And for myself, I was like, okay, I'll just keep writing until I'm done. Question mark. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so there are uh, some very specific differences in what, people expect in them, but also you can't have like with a novel, you can do these beautiful multiple story kinds of things. And um, with a screenplay, while there are different, you know, there are ensemble pieces, they're just so much harder to do and so much more cursory. Like you have to really pare back what are the external uh, expressions of a particular feeling and how do I make that an external action rather than that paragraph of dialogue that explains how much I love you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So you also mentioned in an in an interview somewhere that that um, or some end of the blog somewhere you mentioned that 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 in a way you think that every story is a mystery, which is another form of structure. Can you talk? Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I said that in the context because everything leads to you does have a mystery. Um, and it was my first time attempting a traditional mystery. I thought actually when I started writing that, that the mystery was going to be more at the forefront of the book and that it was going to be really a mystery, like an L.A. noir mystery novel. And it ended up having a life of its own and departing from that. But it was helpful for me because when I, it was actually when I was writing my second book, The Disenchantments, that I started thinking about this idea of every story being a mystery because I thought um, it was something that was helping me with structure. And I thought, what are the questions that are raised and that there need to be more and more questions 
um, as the book continues, because it was a very kind of quiet story of this boy over the course of seven days who has to kind of figure out what to do with his life. And um, so there are questions about his family, about the girl he loves, about, you know, kind of his path and what he's passionate about and all of the stuff. And then I had to answer some, but as I answered them, I had to have it lead to new questions to be raised, right? Mm-hmm. And then some of them um, end up being resolved, some of them don't. And that's to me like what makes a satisfying story. Yeah. How, how do you, can you talk a little bit on, kind of on a logistical level about how you track that kind of thing? I mean, because a lot of our listeners are writers, story makers. And, and, you know, so it's like, how do you actually kind of consciously note, okay, here's the question, here's where it's resolved. In that book I did. Yeah. Um, I had a big blank wall in what was my office and I had, you know, the sticky notes, the colored paper, everything. That was my most kind of visual the most visual I ever got with a book was for that book. And I think because it had a lot um, riding on the logistics because it's a road trip. So, you know, they have to start someplace and end someplace every night. They have to get to my destination eventually. And so there was a lot of really just practical planning that had to go into it. And I started that book with, um, just kind of, I was just really purely looking at it like that. And it was all logistical. And then I wrote this really, um, kind of spare first draft that was not satisfying at all. Mm-hmm. And I realized it lacked all of the emotion. I was so kind of focused on getting, moving them from one place to the next that I had neglected the real heart of the story, of course, which is the emotional part of the story. And so then I went back through and I started writing down those questions. And, um, and then I started answering them. And then I would write on the little paper, you know, morning in Weaverville, California, like, (laughs) this is where um, this question is answered. And this question is sparked. And did you stay with that draft and flesh it out? Or did you put it down and, and start again? I stayed with it and fleshed it out. Everything from the first draft made it to the end. It was a really strange process. <laughs> so, when, so what do you add in to add in emotion? I mean, do you add in interior? Do you add in dialogue? Do you add in what, what different gestures and actions and descriptions? What, what do you do? It was mostly interior. It was mostly his thoughts that I added. Um, I mean, I remember, so there's this big scene where the girl, his best friend who he's in love with, tells him that this plan that they've been forming for years and years, she has strayed from. So basically they were supposed to go to Europe right after high school, not go to college. In secret, she applied to college, got in and is not going on this trip with him. And she tells him at a gas station while they're filling up their VW bus, while two girls, their friends are in the van. And so she like just kind of (laughs) kills his dream there, right? Like, um, and I remember thinking, this is a huge moment, but all I had written was that she goes back into the van and he like pumps the gas and he sees someone drive away and then he gets back into the van. It was like, <laughs> and then I didn't understand when my editor was like, I don't like, what are you saying here? You know? Um, and I reread it and I was like, oh my gosh, I completely just ignored the interior, his, his life here and what he actually would have been thinking. And so I went back in and wrote so much more. I mean, that scene probably like tripled in length and, and in intensity. And then it became an actual emotional scene, not just mm-hmm. him standing there looking at something. 
Mm. So that was my big challenge with that book was really going back in and like mining the characters more, their feelings. Mm. So interesting. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's like, you know, when you, also like again look at comparing it to something that's with screenwriting everything has to be visual and i think sometimes when we're writing we think we're writing prose we're like well he's looking at someone driving away like you know that person's leaving right isn't that enough and um and i'm always afraid of being too um you know spot on too obvious too direct in in my sort of prose writing so then i end up with these things that are kind of nebulous and like um you know i probably after putting in the interiority would have ended up with what you had on your first draft so (laughs) well it's interesting because i feel like that's one of the ways that i've evolved over my books now because with this fourth book um i well half of more than half of the book takes place in a dorm room um during winter break where everybody is gone and so she is like physically alone through a lot of the book and there's no way i could have written it um a few years ago like i just would not have been able to do that like the disenchantments the first draft of the disenchantments is like perfect evidence that i was not at that place yet and then suddenly like it turned into something that i really wanted to challenge myself to do and worked really hard at and then now i feel really proud of it that it's like so kind of emotionally rich even though nothing is happening like she makes top ramen like in a scene you know but so it's like i really forced myself to you know, have her think a lot and feel things and have that end up on the page. Interesting. Interesting. And how do, how do like shifts happen or with, within, you know, within a sort of single person interior scene? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I do like it. I, she has to go back to the physical world, right? So she's thinking things, but then, you know, she turns to the window or she has an idea or she pulls a chair like down the hallway to another room, you know, um, I think so through action, through like changes in weather, it's winter. So it starts to snow, um, you know, different kind of environmental things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's great. And the other, th- somewhere you talked about making, having, being forced to make an outline in one of your grad school classes for your first novel. Who and- did that? Catherine Reese. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. And then you resisted it and then you loved doing it and then you strayed from it. So have you continued to make and stray from outlines or how has that evolved? I have never made an outline the way that I did for her class, um, which was kind of a more, maybe more of a synopsis. I've been very lucky in being able to stay with my editor that I haven't had to do um, any of these, like I haven't had to do a synopsis, like, um, (laughs) (laughs) which I really, it was probably a really cool skill to have, but I've never had to do it. So, um, but for Catherine's class, it was, it was like chapter one, this happens, chapter two, this happens. And kind of, it was really, really difficult for me to try to conceptualize a story that way. And so for the disenchantments I did, as I said, like the map on my wall with all those little notes. So that was one way. And then for everything leads to you, I'm trying to remember that was the book that I 
did the most drafts of. I tend to write spare first drafts and then flush them out. And that's usually my process. But For Everything Leads to You was the the book where I had the most kind of false starts. And I would write a bunch of pages and realize it's all wrong and throw it away. And that was a new experience for me. And so that one was tough. And I think it was much more just kind of looser notes than actual outlining. Right. Mm. So do you have at this point now that since you have an editor that you work so closely with, do you have a writing group? Do you have people with whom you share your draft in progress and that sort of thing? I do. Yeah, I have. Um, yeah, it's three women um, who all were in the same year at Mills with me. So we've been meeting for over 10 years now. Um mm-hmm. Yeah. And we meet once a month. And so, and we don't each share each time. So it's kind of whoever has enough of a project to share does. And they're the the first eyes on the project before I send it. Do you show it in pieces then? I do. Yeah. I mean, we'll do um, typically like kind of the beginning, maybe the first 50 pages or so of a book and then get some initial encouragement or direction. And then at least I tend not to share again until I have a full draft. Mm-hmm. And then they'll read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it, really helpful. Yeah, it is helpful. It's yeah. great. We also, we keep a Google calendar and we um, check in daily with what oh, we wow. Yeah. Which is just cool. Like, I mean, if you don't do anything, you don't have to write anything down. And that unfortunately has been my life for the last few months. It's been kind of. You have an actual calendar and people sort of log into the calendar and write what they did that day. It would yeah. be, do you ever write down your, like what you plan to do or. No, um, not really. We have like monthly goals that mm-hmm. we set for ourselves. But yeah, we don't really do daily goals. We just do what we did. So it's awesome. That is so satisfying. I have, I have a couple of friends. I send my to-do list to by email each morning, or I actually do it in the evening. And then during the day, as I do things, I change the color. Like I sort of send it back to myself to change the color. And then at the end, you know, when I send them the new one, they can see how much I did the old one. It's so helpful and satisfying. It is. Yeah, it's really great. And it, it it's really motivating too, you know, especially like if I log on and I haven't been doing anything and I see everyone's working really hard, it's inspiring <laughs> to get back to it. Yeah. What what else, what else are your most helpful supports? Like I find that writers, you know, have so much trouble come out, you know, putting support into place. They think, oh, support means I'm going to work harder or faster or whatever. But like that is a support, right? So what what other supports do you have? I mean, I would say that's the main one for sure. I I mean, my wife is really supportive like that. I mean you know, she'll say like, let's make sure we get you time this weekend. And I'm bad at saying that because, you know, we have a family structure where she goes out to her job every day and sometimes travels some weeks and I'm home with the baby. And then on the weekends, it's like, this is our time that we could all be together. And it's hard for me to say I need time. And so it's nice to have a partner who is the one who like brings up the idea and then it's easier to be like, yeah, I do need time. Um, so that's, you know, just having people who see writing is a real thing that you actually have to do in your life in order to produce books and not think that books happen magically is really lucky. But I mean, in terms of just that daily support, it's really, I've been able to depend on my writing group for that for so many years that that 
is really kind of what I need and all that I need. That's so awesome. So you, I also no, noticed in your description of your teaching, you talked about, um, you talked about uh, sort of, t- uh, let's see, talking about um, nuts and bolts information about approaching the publishing industry that we wish we'd had when we were trying to find our places in the publishing world. Can you give us a few of those hints? Oh my gosh, yeah. Um... Let me think. So this was a series, what you're referencing is a series of classes that I did with this writer, Kristen Tracy, who is also a young adult and middle grade author. And we had this fun kind of run of classes. And then um, she got married and moved to the East Coast and we stopped doing the classes. So let me think of what we, I mean, I think we had just a bunch of tips about query letters. We had a really cool advisory board of a bunch of agents and some editors and we had them weigh in and give us advice. And, you know, I, one of the, the tips that resonates with me now or that I'm remembering was to really focus on the work and not so much your bio and what you've accomplished, um, unless it really directly relates to the story that you're telling. And I think that can be really encouraging for a lot of writers who don't have publication credits and feel like, oh, like I don't have an MFA, I haven't been published in Plowshares, you know, like whatever. And and they can um, know, like that's not really important. What's important is that you can write a good book. And so to really focus on the story is something that I remembered. And I mean, another thing that I think we encouraged was really submitting widely to agents because that's something I learned from personal experience. I, as I mentioned before, I wasted a lot of time just waiting on one person. Doing that now. Oh, <laughs> hopefully it won't be a waste for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of a little bit of a numbers game, I guess. Mm-hmm. They should make like a Tinder for agents, and you could just be like, "Hey, I'm in your genre. You're in here." <laughs> Yeah. Let's just see. Let's I mean, see I've that. seen. Um, I mean, I love that idea. <laughs> I have seen on Twitter kind of some interesting opportunities like that. Like, I I don't follow it closely enough to really know, but I saw something called Pitch Wars. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I don't know. It might just be YA. I'm not sure, but it's like um, you know, on, like certain agents participate. People write, you know. Uh, a tiny, tiny pitch that can fit in a tweet. And if the agents are interested, they'll say, yeah, like send it to me. Wow. So, I mean, it's a way to bypass that whole slow agonizing process of sending and waiting and waiting. That's, that's a short pitch. I know. (laughs) And a quick question, like for, for, um, I don't know, but like when you sign up with an agent, do you, do they often have interest in what your next project is or do they not care so much? Oh yeah, they definitely want the long view. Um, I mean, if you have, I mean, I think any agent that's worth having is someone who's going to want to look at your career beyond just that first book. And so I think, you know, you get the agent with that first pitch, right. With that Mm -hmm. first book. And then I think it's never too early to say, Hey, I also have this one in the works or I have this draft, you know, done or whatever and, and have them start looking. Um, I mean, I, 
like in my experience and how I think it should be is that your agent is your greatest advocate and they're in they're in it with you and for the for the long term and um I think I, you I feel are a very long-term person. I'm noticing we've got a long-term relationship with your wife. You've got a long-term relationship with people that you went to mills with, right? right. Got a long-term relationship with your editor. I'm seeing that you are not afraid of commitment. <laughs> That's true. You know, I like to feel, I, I have trouble not that this is like the way I frame my whole world, but I do have trouble working. I have trouble writing and producing things when I don't feel secure, mm-hmm. um, which probably speaks to me way more than just my writing. But I, I like that feeling. I, I like, you know, knowing where I am and knowing where I'll be tomorrow. And um, I think it frees me up to be more creative. Let, let your characters take the risks and run. <laughs> So our final segment is um, called Steal This, and it comes from the the T.S. Eliot quote, um, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. Of course, other people said it probably first, but (laughs) um, so is there anything you've come across lately in your world that you wanted to take and make your own? Yes. Um, I'm going very pop culture for this one. That is like most of, or a lot of the world. I've been listening to Adele's new album a lot. And she has a song called When We Were Young. And I think it's a really beautiful song. And there's a line and I like, I kept listening and I thought I knew what she was saying, but I wasn't sure. And so I looked it up and it's, um, we were sad of growing old is the line and I looked it up and I was like what do you mean like we were sad of growing old and and at first I was kind of disdainful like she couldn't even write like the right lyrics you know like that's not something you say but then I kept thinking about it and how just emotionally resonant it was and how it sounds so great when she sings it and then I was thinking about how song lyrics or poetry don't have to adhere to the same standards you know or conventions as prose And then I have just kept thinking about it and, you know, listening to her sing it and have thought that maybe it's telling me that sometimes like it's good to break rules to allow that kind of feeling in and that kind of urgency that doesn't, um, it's like, I mean, there are other ways she could have said that, but she chose to say it that way, even though it didn't make sense because it's so emotional and raw. And so I've been thinking about that as I'm working to just kind of continue to push myself and push the way that I might write and um, turn off that voice that says like, oh, that's a wrong decision. That's not the way that you should be writing it. That voice is is pretty persistent. I mean, I don't know if that if you've tamed that voice at all after four novels or if you've learned to tune it out, like the critical voice. Um. No, I certainly haven't <laughs> learned to, to tune it out. And I'm going back to the beginning of our conversation. I still remember things from that first semester of grad school. Like I still remember um, our professor who I admire so much and whose work I love, Victor Laval, like in a margin on like over a stretch of like several pages, just like wrote a line and wrote so boring. And then boring, <laughs> boring, boring. <laughs> That's a voice I still hear <laughs> as I'm working. I, it's like, is this boring? I ask myself that all the time. <laughs> so, 
yeah, I have I have many voices. <laughs> oh my gosh. Maybe that's why we write fiction because we have all these voices in our heads and at least we can put them on the page. Yeah. Um, how about you, Angie? You have a steal this? Well, I am actually sort of going back. I just finished a big paper for my uh, program and uh, I was just sort of looking at the bits and bobs of life and thinking about checklists, actually. So I'm actually returning to the idea of getting some checklists in place for things that are simple. But I think like when I when I left Mills, I wanted something that was more concrete. Like, how do I know what my intention was? Like, I was such an intuitive writer and I was able to go through that entire program without revising. And um and that was kind of a bummer for me. And so I think going back to um, like a checklist only is a simple way to sort of say what was important to me and did I get it is kind of step one and step two. And then from there kind of going through, but I'm going back to revisit um, the whole checklist thing. And what is his name? I forget his name. The checklist yeah. manifesto. I know his I'll initials are A-G. Yeah, I it's like Gawand. Yeah, the Atul Gawand. Yeah, the, it's the checklist manifesto. Or Gawande, I don't know. Yeah. And so, do you make the checklist when you're just starting the project, and then you go back, or is it more incremental as you work through? Well, I think that what I'm going to do actually is sort of have like a processual checklist. So there might be some that I do at the beginning, like you know, just to kind of get things going, because I tend to do well with like here's a small thing you need to do, and then I can take it and go further. Um, but I think going back, you know, in editing, not just like, is this boring or is this not boring, but you know, am I, is there shape to my scenes? Like, you know what I mean? Or things like that, that I didn't even know existed as a, as a thing to look for in, you know, writing. <laughs> right now the checklists are a little bit theoretical. Yeah, they're theoretical. Right, it might, yeah, it might be good <laughs> to just make one and see what happens, see what it's like. I know my life-changing single, but you know, he, the whole, his whole story is about how they brought these checklists into like emergency rooms mm -hmm. and uh, operating theaters and people's, you know, survival rates went through the roof compared to what had happened because it was simple things like wash your hands, make sure your hands are you know what I mean? And um, and that what they also did was not related to writing necessarily, but they diversified responsibility. So it became much more lateral in terms of management. And so that people all had these ways of making decisions, but a framework in which to make them that was part of a larger thing. That's so interesting. I love that. I like it because so much of writing is intuitive. Like there's that, I've now forgotten who has that like driving through the fog with your um, headlights. That's, uh, I think that's, is that Forrester or, oh no, it's, um, uh, yeah, um, Somerset Mom. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, such a, I, I've always thought that's the perfect description, you know, <laughs> you don't know what's waiting ahead. And so to pair that kind of just like feeling around in the dark, feeling with something so concrete, like a checklist, seems like a perfect way to. Oh my God. Like I remembered when I, it was just before I was graduating and I went into Michelin and I was like, I'm freaking out. Like I have no idea what I'm writing about, what the point is, like any of this. And she's like, well, if you, you know, if you don't feel lost and blind, then you aren't doing it. Um, but I do like, I like, I like some of the skills that came from screenwriting because I think they prepare you to be more um, 
actually more creative. Like when you have constraints, you have the opportunity to come up with new ideas. And even though you may not stick with your outline, having done some of that work, I think prepares you to make um, appropriate, organic, but original kinds of choices. Yeah. All right, my steal this is um, (laughs) perhaps a little bit shallow, but um, I'm reading Purity, but I'm reading the new Jonathan Franzen book. And um, and I got him sort of like past the halfway mark. I suddenly hit this new chapter and it's a New Yorker story that I read (laughs) and um, probably not only I anyway. And but it was so interesting to remember reading this little scene with these characters who I didn't know anything else about. And now to come to it with so much backstory about these characters or really forward story, because it's really in the book, it's kind of a flashback, right? And so and so suddenly to like see how this piece kind of worked as a short story in my brain versus how it worked as a piece of a novel and just kind of toggling back and forth between those. And one of the things that made me think was, I, w- I did this piece of writing that I'm really excited about, but which seems so embedded in my novel. And I thought, well, I'm going to look at it and see if it could also be a short story. Cool. That's so great. Are there like short story outlets for YA? Um, not very many. No, I, I have a story coming out in an anthology there. That's kind of a new big thing. Like there are quite a few young adult anthologies with mm-hmm that are like very kind of mainstream, not academic, you know, like, um, and so that's, that's been fun. That's a way to read short fiction, but yeah, it's really hard to find short, even short stories at all within YA. Maybe on like medium or, or on what's the one your niece is doing? What, uh, what's that? What's WhatsApp? What, what's that? It is, it's not WhatsApp, but it's, it's WhatsApp. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> her 13 year old niece is writing, you know, yeah. fiction on it and, and has, you know, 25 followers or something. No, she's got like more than that. Well, Don't disparage my niece's <laughs> writing ability. Anyway, well, you've taken up so much. Wattpad. 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 You're like, I've heard of that. <laughs> you old people looking for. <laughs> Wattpad is something. No, it totally is, but it's a communication <laughs> app. It's not like a. Anyway. Right, right. Yes, we're so on the cutting edge. I'm thinking after this, though, that maybe we should do like a group one. We get all the like X Mills people together. Oh, that'd be so, fun. and like kind of see where everybody is, and then you know, we could also have beer. I think we could actually get <laughs> funds from Mills not yes. to record that call at this point. <laughs> That sounds perfect. Yes. A little stipend for everyone. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. Oh, how can people find you and your wonderful work in the world? Um, I'm on Twitter at Nina underscore LaCour. My website is ninalacour.com. And... I think those are the best ways to reach me. I'd give you my email, but I am hopeless at email as you have both encountered and trying to set this up. So um, yeah, Twitter and my website are good. Perfect. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the next book. Yeah. Thank you.